Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. All right. Well, I do think that we should acknowledge that as we are recording, we have just found out that the Associated Press has officially called the election for Joseph R. Biden. I hope that's who you checked off on your ballot. I know it's a little confusing that he campaigns under Joe and then puts his full name on the ballot. Hope that didn't confuse any of you. You're like, uh, Donald Trump? Joe Jorgenstern? (laughs) Joe Jorgenstern. She believes she's been abducted by aliens. And I think that's a level of diversity we don't talk about enough in politics. I think that's right. I would also like to take this exact one and only moment to say thank you, Joe Jorgensen, abducted by aliens at one point, for taking those 76,000 votes out of Michigan, which put it out of recount territory. (laughs) Really appreciate that, Joe. Not Joe Biden, but Joe Joe Jorgensen. J-O-N-O-E. Exactly. Thank you for your work. One of my favorite TikToks that ends up on my For You page are great moments in libertarian history. (laughs) I hope this one goes down as a great moment. I know. I do too. My favorite is the libertarian debate in like, I think it was 2008. And the moderator was like, how do we feel about driver's licenses? And the person who eventually got the nomination was like, well, I would like to know that there was some competency behind someone who is driving a motor vehicle and the whole crowd booed. And then this other guy interrupted. He's like, license to drive? What's next? License to use my own toaster? (laughs) That's a good one. I like that one. That's really great. That's really good. So voting is important. But what's cool about not having a fascist dictator in office, assuming that that's going to work out, is that now we can focus on like even more pressing stuff that can benefit even more from your dollar. So that money you were giving to the Biden-Harris campaign, you can now give it to prison reform, educational opportunities. You can give it to Planned Parenthood and other healthcare organizations. Yeah, NARL, Pro-Choice USA, making sure that women across the U.S. are going to have access to a Yeah, because I think if there's one thing that this election has made clear to people across the board is that Democrats are really that much better than Republicans and that the work is ongoing and constant and voting in the federal election isn't enough. You got to vote for your local judges. Got to vote for your local judges. You got to vote for your local state attorneys. You got to vote for your sheriffs. You've got to organize. As I told my students on the Thursday before the election because in Illinois the election was a state holiday and I wasn't required to hold class and did not. I told them and I tell myself as I will tell all of you that democracy is a verb which means that it is an action and if you are not acting then you are not doing it and we all needs to do it. Love and democracy are verbs not nouns. And it's constant. But, you know, we hate living under late capital. We make no bones about it. But if I could put something in the pro column, it's that when you live under late capital, throwing money at a problem is a way to solve it. So if you're feeling overwhelmed and you don't know what to do or you can't go to protests because your boyfriend's coworker. <laughs> 
had to get tested for COVID. <laughs> what you can do is throw money at an issue. Yay. <laughs> and it does make a difference. It does make a difference. Also, if you don't have that money to throw around because we live under late capital and that's definitely a thing and we're still in the midst of a pandemic, there are two Georgia races that are going to a runoff that will decide whether <laughs> Biden can govern. So like maybe write some postcards if you can or make some calls or text. I've been receiving lovely text messages from all over about whether or not I'm voting in various elections. We can all do something. But just voting is a very neoliberal idea. And so please stop just voting and start doing something else. I guess. In addition, this is a yes and situation. This is a yes and. Okay, very good. We went over the election. I'm drinking champagne. That's a wrap. No, it's not a wrap. <laughs> We've got to do our actual show. Oh my gosh. All right, here we go. Big sigh. <sighs> Morgan. I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. This is a podcast about romance novels. About brothers. About pottery. About neuro-non-typicality. About pre-Belle Epoque Paris. About hoarding information. About second marriages. About families that are way too much into your business. About murder most power. About bastards. Most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are discussing The Madness of Lord Ian McKenzie by Jennifer Ashley. Boop, 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 boop. The author's so nice, they first named her twice. They sure did. I love that. I wish there was more of that in romance novel authordom. I love the double feminine first name. Yeah, I think it's nice. It's like Anderson Cooper, double last name. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Let's think here. Mirabella Alyssa. Mmm, that's a great one. Mirabella is a kind of chicken preparation. Oh, I didn't know that. I used to babysit a little girl named Mirabella. Was she covered in a mushroom sauce? She was a vegetarian, so not that far off. <laughs> she smelled like she was covered in a mushroom sauce. <laughs> She's a sweet kiddo. You know, I would love to see like a Valerie Ivy because I think Ooh. like, you know, there's so much play that you can have in like the verge words like Ivy, Rose, Hedge. The name Valerie is so good for a romance novelist. One of my all time best friends since I was very small, Valerie. She's listening. Shout out. It's such a good romance novelist name. I totally agree. It's formal, but it's also a little bit old sounding, but like Val could be fun. It's versatile. Yes. Yeah. It contains multitudes. Yes. It's like a silk dress. It Mm. falls Mm. on whoever wears it perfectly. She's very much a Scorpio. And I think (laughs) Valerie just fits a Scorpio, but I'm sure Valerie would fit any of the astrological signs equally well. Exactly. It has great drape. It has great drape. Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll see how this episode goes. We did not discuss what we were going to talk about before we came on air. What do you want to start with? Can I start with the experience of reading this book? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Tell me about it. So a couple of things. I bought this book from 57th Street Books. Shout out to local bookstore here in Chicago. But what's really fun about 57th Street Books is that it is part of the co-op bookstore, which is attached to the University of Chicago. So I actually had the book shipped there because that's closer to where I live now. And rolling up to the university 
university bookstore and getting a purple romance book <laughs> with like a clinch cover with like her back exposed like made me feel so good I was felt like such a little fucking shitster I was so proud of myself I'm like I made you get this book like uh, look at it look at it that is so funny <laughs> Copyright 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. This fits. Mm-hmm. So I started reading this in the weeks leading up to the presidential election. And so I think the anxiety and angst that was in my outsides was trying to be soothed by romance. And this book was not as soothing as I wanted it to be. And that was difficult. I was like, I have to do this because I have a show that I dearly love and a partner who's depending on me. <laughs> but it's like not the thing that I want right now. Was it too much angst? Is that what it was? Angst? And that was part of it. There's so much angst in the outside of my life that like reading it for any kind of pleasure was not enjoyable at that moment. But it was also like it was such a wrong version of a diversity try. Oh, wow. I think we've come a long way since 2009. So like our hero is on the spectrum and we as modern readers understand stand Ian McKenzie to be on the spectrum. And in the book, which takes place in like 17... No, it's 1881. 1881, thank you. He has been declared insane at one point and had to be institutionalized because his dad's a really bad person. And his madness, as we understand it as modern readers, isn't madness. It's autism. He's on the spectrum. And as I was reading it, I was like, okay, it's cool that we're talking about neuro non-typicality. I'm really excited about that. I was excited to read this book for that reason. And 2020 is so far removed from 2009 in terms of like what we know about brains and how we talk about neuro non-typicality. There were moments in this book where I like I freaking cringed. And um, I've been thinking about that. And I've been thinking about like what this book means and like what it's doing and like what the merits of that are. And I think like one of the things that this book really began to point out to me and why I didn't appreciate it, but maybe like it is exactly what I needed, is that like the march toward progress, if that's even a thing that we do, is ramshackle, shambling and ugly at points. Falls backwards many times. Yeah. And like this book is ramshackle, hot towards a kind of neurodiversity discussion. And like, it's good that it's pointed in that direction. I just think that there were so many missteps. Well, I think that's really interesting because we read a lot of like 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s romance, all 20th century, but we read a lot of it and a lot of 20th century romance. And we are able to find so much pleasure. A recent example would be Whitney, My Love by Judith McNaught, which for all of the ideals that I think we share, we were able to enjoy that book in spite of its social shortcomings. Do you think you weren't able to reconcile that because 2009 is too fresh for you? Like you were alive Mm. and like cognizant then? Because 2009, I was a junior in high school. That is such a different world. Mm -hmm. And the way we understood, I got on Goodreads to look at this book because it's wildly popular. Mm -hmm. But I saw that Jennifer Ashley responded to a question. Someone says, does the main character have Asperger's, which is not really a term we use anymore. And she said, yes, but I couldn't describe it as such because of the era that the book was set in, which I want to talk about that, that idea of like, how does 
not naming it work. But when I remember what 2009 was like, the idea that someone on the autism spectrum could be a romantic hero, like that feels like it's not just like pushing a boundary, it's punching through a boundary. And the reason we've been talking about doing this book forever, because it was on so many of those greatest romances of all time lists. And I have to say, I had a very different experience reading the book than you. So I can totally see it. I feel like this was a sea change Mm -hmm. in romance. And I can see it happening as I'm reading the book. So you've told me before that I'm better at compartmentalizing. I'm not entirely sure if that's a compliment. But I think my experience of reading it in the week after the election this past week, I did not take it as that angsty. And it wasn't until I got onto Goodreads and started talking to you that I was like, yeah, this is a very angsty book. But I was able to lose myself in it and to not think about everything that was going on around me. I mean, I did a lot to like create that kind of environment anyways. But I was super able to kind of fall into the world of the novel. I loved the murder mystery. That felt like a really good edge. The sex scenes were sensual and very steamy, but never got into like, I think sometimes sex scenes can get a little too corporeal. And (laughs) this didn't do that for me. It was one of those situations where after the first chapter, I really felt like I was in good hands with the author and that I could let let myself go and there wouldn't be anything that jumped out and scared me. And nothing really did. Maybe nothing jumped out and scared me though, because I was in a state of shrieking fear. <laughs> anyway. So it's like, how high can my heart rate spike, really? I think that's right. And I think it's right to think about like how close 2009 feels, but also how far away it feels. And I think you're right. This book was truly punching a barrier in terms of what a hero could be. And I think I do want to discuss and call out how important I think that is and remains and continues to be. Should we read the back of the book? Let's do that. Okay. Most women heeded the warnings. One woman was tempted by them. It was whispered all through London society that Ian McKenzie was mad, that he'd spent his youth in an asylum, and that he was not to be trusted, especially with a lady. For the reputation of any woman caught in his presence was instantly ruined. Yet Beth found herself inexorably drawn to the Scottish lord, whose hint of a brogue wrapped around her like silk, and whose touch could pull her into a world of ecstasy. Despite his decadence and his intimidating intelligence, she could see that he needed her help because suddenly the only thing that made sense to her was the madness of Lord Ian Mackenzie. Do you want to start with our heroine or do you want to start with our hero? Lord Ian Mackenzie. Let's actually start with the heroine. Mm-hmm. Beth. Her mother was of some status, and she ended up marrying this French guy who said he was of some status, but he wasn't. He was a con man, and he was an alcoholic, and he left them or died. Doesn't really matter. In any case, he was absent, and she and her mother end up in the workhouse, which sucks. And in fact, her mother had to turn to sex work for a time, which sex work in this book is also really interesting. It is really interesting. We understand 
sex work to be an act of desperation for her mother, but I did not pick up on any kind of like judgment of sex workers unless they kind of like overall sucked. What was so interesting to me about the discussion of sex work is that like the idea that like you turn to it because you have no other options is sort of like the undercurrent. But when we meet other sex workers, there is this moment where like someone is trying to shame Beth and she's like, people do it and people pay for it. And like, it's not going to stop. So you making me feel bad is just you being an asshole. Like, I don't need to take on your puritanical bullshit. And I really appreciated that. I also appreciated the character of Molly, Mm -hmm. who is a sex worker who Beth knows from her previous life, who Beth is going to reach out to to try to solve this murder mystery that we'll get into. And through a series of misadventures, Beth has her now nephew, who's like 16, named Daniel with her. And Molly really gets this opportunity to very pithily and wittily put him in his place whenever he tries to be like, don't talk to a lady like that. Also, Molly has a lot of agency even when she's talking to Beth. And Beth is oftentimes humbled and made to like consider her own status and how she got to where she is and what that means by the sex workers in the novel. For instance, Beth is like, oh, it's very dangerous here. And Molly says, oh, really? I hadn't noticed. Thanks for the the info. And Molly ends up being really heroic in that she puts Beth in contact with this courtesan who is able to explain to her the, the missing piece of this murder mystery puzzle, which is about a same-sex affair between two sex workers, two women, which was also depicted as very loving and was not sensationalized. There's also that character who is Ian's friend in the asylum. Like, they're eccentric, but it's because the nature of their relationship is eccentric, not the, like, parameters of their sex, which I thought was great. Once again, like, nothing jumped out at me and, like, shocked me (laughs) and, like, upset me. It all seemed to kind of have a rhythm. So this court is who shows up at Beth's house to talk about the murder mystery. She is kind of an asshole, but she also points out to Beth, (laughs) like, my situation is not so different from your situation. So if you want to let me into your parlor, that would be cool. And Beth is like, you're right. I made a lot of assumptions about you, which is fucking cool. This came out my junior year of high school. Think about the kind of like wokeness or whatever. Like everything I thought of, I think at that age was from a deficit model where I was like, I wouldn't even say sex worker like oh it's so sad to be a prostitute we should support them because it's so hard and sad we should help them find different jobs you know or you know the same thing with people who use drugs one of the things that came out of the most recent election was that Oregon has legalized small amounts of heroin cocaine and mushrooms under therapeutic circumstances and I was listening to a lot of shock horror over it and I was thinking about how I felt about it and I recalled that there have been so many people throughout history who have had, I mean, please don't use bad drugs if they're going to hurt you, right? But I think about people such as from my own adopted hometown of Lawrence, Kansas, William S. Burroughs, who was able to live a really long life as long as he could sustain his heroin addiction. And I don't think that comes from a place of, you know, recreational fun use. I think William S. Burroughs is obviously a very specific example, but like if people need it to survive, like whenever there was all that uproar about liquor stores being kept open as essential businesses. And it's like, well, there are people who, if they don't have alcohol, they will get very sick and potentially die from withdrawal.
withdrawals. Like socially, we're not ready for abolition of substances of any kind because people need to self-medicate. Not only do people need to self-medicate, but like the criminalization of those substances in particular have obviously harmed marginalized people of color, black men in particular, at much higher rates than their white counterparts. And so like the decriminalization of that amount will have the downstream consequence, ideally, of decriminalization in general should help keep people from being in prison for like recreational amounts. And like, that's one of the things that's really important to talk about that like was not in the conversations that I was having in 2009, certainly about drug addiction or sex work. Or sex work. Like, why would we imprison someone for that? Right. I think the other aspect of that is like, I'm really glad you said decriminalization because a lot of people say legalize sex work. And that's not the same thing as decriminalizing it. Because I work as an event planner by any other name, right? There are no like laws or like federal standards beyond paying my taxes that I have to adhere to, right? I can get hired by a company, I can conduct my business. And it's not that I'm protected, it's that I'm free of legal stricture. And that's what's important with sex work. Y'all know how the cops can be. If we legalize it, we put all these structures around it, that's encouraging just a different kind of exploitation or at least creating the opportunity or the vacuum for it. And it's also not necessarily appealing, right? Why would you want to go through these legal channels that are going to cost more money, that are going to create hierarchy, whereas decriminalizing just says no one's going to get arrested for sex work, which is how work normally is. How work normally is. And I think one of my favorite things about historical romances is the pervasive acknowledgement that sex work is normal. And I think like even the most prudish versions of historical novels oftentimes have sex workers, especially if they're set in London, especially if they're set between the Regency and like the Edwardian. There are, you know, bordellas where like the Lord has been and like sometimes the courtesan is like a beak character that like he had a long-standing affair with and like obviously romance has changed the conversation within the genre about like what sex work looks like and like what we can think about it and like how people characterize it but I think it's also done the good work of normalizing it for me even in the historical context and I think like that's one of the like unsung magics of genre, especially romance, it does a really good job of being like, no, there were sex workers. No, there were sex workers. No, there were sex workers. Right. We're giving Jennifer Ashley all this credit, but we read that Joanna Lindsay that was like, you know, more than reasonable. And the reason why we use the term sex worker is because it's not just about receiving a fee for sexual acts. Mm -hmm. Sex work can encompass a great many things. Maybe something you do or something, you know, your friend does. And that's also important to the work. So that's why we use the term sex worker. I think oftentimes we forget to mention why we say the words we say. People know that it's politically correct, but they don't know why. And just to reiterate here at Womance, when we say politically correct, we mean kind, generous, and considerate of other people, which is the way we should all be living our lives. Exactly. But this book actually had a rich, developed sex worker characters with nuanced motivations. <laughs> I am now thinking of the villain of the novel. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to our heroine real quick. So she, after her mother passes, she meets a, a reverend who lives in the East End, and he marries her. Yeah. And she has one year of blissful comfort, uh, and then he dies tragically. Proto-feminist, sex-positive reverend. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Although our hero does make the distinction, like, you can be sex positive and still not be sex interesting. And so then she's taken in by this reclusive, wealthy widow as a companion. And then when that widow dies, she leaves all of her money and property to Beth. And so now she's a well-endowed woman of status. And she did all that social climbing just by being, like, a nice, patient reasonable person and she's I believe 29 years old when the book starts so that's Beth in like a nutshell right her history is going to inform the fact that she always says she's not a wilting lily she has decided after I think chapter three that she's not gonna worry about getting married because she doesn't really have a reason to get married well we meet her and she's engaged to this actually nefarious fellow who our hero super duper doesn't like but has various interactions with and so the nefarious fellow is like come to the opera meet my amazing well-dowered widow who I'm about to like use all her money to like smooth over my bad investments because she's legally dead and all her assets are mine as soon as I put a ring on it. Yeah, he is a bad social climber. He's a bad social climber. And Ian knows that. So he's like, I guess I should go meet this person and see whether or not she deserves to be saved from a fate she probably doesn't know she's like getting into. Which, by the way, the reason he thinks that it's a fate she doesn't deserve is because kink shame about to come through. (laughs) JK, when I said earlier I wasn't prodded by anything in this book, the kink shaming of this poor man really sucks. It does suck. So he likes to be spanked. One of the reasons he's going broke is that he keeps a house of ladies who will spank him. And that's why Ian thinks she deserves better. Yeah, because this guy sucks for that. Right. Like, not like, oh, hey, did you know your future husband is interested in spanking? Maybe that's something you guys should share with each other. And talk about. He was like, get out! He likes to be spanked! What a weirdo! Yeah, that was, like, unpleasant. Yeah, that was unpleasant. So he meets her at the opera, and she's super gorgeous, and he's like, I want to fuck you. You need to not marry this guy. And proposes marriage to her basically on the spot and she reacts in the way that I think anyone would react to that which is both strangely flattered and been like no bud thank you though and then he hands her the letter that he has written out detailing the alleged crimes of her fiance she breaks off the engagement because of that letter and those revelations and that is where our story begins really Yeah. And I think that letter and those revelations, I think what's really key there is that he expresses like, this guy isn't interested in you. This is the stuff he's expressed to me. But because it gets all tied up in that spanking stuff, because that has to be mentioned for some reason, it becomes like gross. I think you're totally right because like the thing is like he's in debt up to his eyeballs. He's going to use all of your money which you will have no control over once you are married. Like those are real material concerns (laughs) worth warning a person about. Yeah and there's also an aroma of like you should be worried about this person. This is someone who needs help. He has put himself into an enormous amount of debt having a house full of mistresses. That's a problem. If you're living beyond your means in one specific area, something else is going on and the problem isn't that you like to be spanked. It's that you are using it for something else. 
right? Like that's once you hit, if we can talk about it again, addiction. I'm glad we addressed that. Yeah. Here's what I will say about this book. And like, as we move forward into the parts that are harder for me to talk about, when I was reading it, there were moments that I was like flung out of the text. But by and large, like I read this in basically 10 hours. I immediately purchased the seven subsequent books in this series. How do they have seven? There's not that many brothers. Oh, I hope one is about Curry, his manservant. Maybe. The next one is, anyway, that's like getting off topic. But as you said earlier, like you do honestly feel like you are in the hands of someone that you can trust, even as they begin to talk about complicated stuff. And so Beth flees to Paris because she's got all this money and she hasn't really been using it. Loved it. Loved being in Paris made me feel, even though it's 1881 Paris, it made me feel nostalgic for Paris. I had to go onto Paris Instagram and look at the Montmartre streets, look at the parks. Chicago was built based on Paris, by the way. (laughs) And you can feel it. Wide boulevards, tons of parks. We actually, we always dreamed of our uh, public transit system eventually being like Paris, which is where the yellow line comes from, which is this short little like macaroni noodle. between two train lines. We were supposed to have a super loop and we never get enough money for it. Give your Biden-Harris money to the super loop. Maybe this time. (laughs) Seriously. And so we go to Paris and like, I I really did love that she took the letter as an opportunity to be like, you know what? This money is for me. Like that old lady that I was super nice to for nine years wanted me to be happy. Like, what am I going to do? So she goes to Paris and she's like, I'm going to draw landscapes. I want to learn to paint. I loved it. Yeah, she takes her wisecracking maid with her and like all of her servants are very loyal. And when I read a historical and we have loyal servants. I don't see it as like servile and gross. Maybe I should, but I see it very much in the attitude of like you tip your servers and they take care of you because you're a decent human. Especially in the case of Katie, her Irish companion, who is her paid companion, which is what Beth was previously. And she's a girl who is an immigrant and who Beth met in her previous life when she was really young in the East End. And you get the sense that she's fully intending on like giving this young woman the tools that she was given by Mrs. Barrington and that she's going to bring her up into the world and eventually give all of Miss Barrington's money and property to her. Yeah. One of the things about this book that I think really covers over its stumbles for me is that all of the characters, the main characters and like their constellation of B characters are truly kind. And like, even when they fuck up, you know, they're still trying. And I think there's so much value in that. Like you had said earlier, the moment where like one of the sex workers comes and is like, you're going to put me in your parlor. Like you're being ridiculous. And like Beth has that moment where she like thinks about it and she's like, you're right. My apologies. And I think having it on the page where people are constantly put in situations to learn and then they do is like really pleasurable. But I also think like really important to remember in our polarized moment where it's like we do indeed have to give space for people to get better because if we don't, then we're just shouting at them and that's not a space where anybody has the opportunity to learn from their own mistakes and like grow. Well, and I'm really glad you brought up putting it on the page because this might be a bit of a diatribe, 
But Julia Quinn is getting a lot of attention for the upcoming Netflix series based on the Bridgertons. Yeah, I've never read any of the books, but people I trust and respect love those books, like Erin from Learning the Tropes. But one thing that's really disturbing being on Romance Instagram is seeing the comments on Julia Quinn's posts about her television show, which includes people of color in roles that people think it's really important that they're white because they were historically white, probably, even though there were plenty of powerful people, especially in France, who were of color at this time. Indeed. In fact, Julia Quinn loves to talk about colorblind casting. Yeah, but Julia Quinn had a much different history with historical romances and how she framed the racial makeup of her books. And I think that allowed her to get a lot of fans to justify their own prejudices. And you see people kind of falling apart in the comments, but I've never seen Julia Quinn respond to them. And I am super willing to give her, to understand that she has grown as a person, that she's educated herself, that she's had difficult conversations, that she's thought about things deeply, and she's come to a new conclusion. I think it would be really bitchin' if she could come out and make a statement to that effect and explain why she changed her mind and put it on the page so that her fans who don't hold those ideas can see that exemplified, right? That someone they admire and respect is able to change their mind and have that not be a negative, have that not be a mark against them, have that be a normal part of being a human being who is in the world, not a child child, not someone who's confused, right? We can all always learn and grow. I wish she would do that because I think it would stop some of the incendiary comments that I see on Instagram about the Bridgertons. Which, by the way, I'm a white woman seeing those. Imagine what, like, a young woman of color seeing those or a young man of color who loves romance, what it's like to see people say that they don't belong in those stories. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important. I think that's also why the depiction of the main character in this book, while at times I think not as elegant or sophisticated as it could be, I still understand why it's important. And I think that's one of the things that we also have to give space for. It's like, I don't think Jennifer Ashley would write this book the way that she wrote it in 2009 now. Like, we all grow, ideally. Otherwise, we're stuck in stasis and stagnation and death. And I think, like, to your point about Julia Quinn, I think it is really important. You know, she is a huge name, and she's about to, like push romance into even more mainstream and like how big would it be to have somebody like Julia Quinn be like these are the things that I said in 2009 that were ugly and bad and like I take ownership of who I was at that point and I understand and have had difficult conversations have done the work and have grown which is why I am truly deeply and unutterably excited about the colorblind casting of the Bridgertons you can be both Yeah. And I also want to say it's not necessarily colorblind. Like it's as legitimate if someone was like, we need to have black people in this show and chose actors based on the fact that they were dark skinned. You know what I mean? Like colorblind is less of a virtue than I think people think it is. Totally. At this point, like once again, I don't think we're ready to get rid of all drugs. I don't think we're ready to be colorblind. We're not. So let's be like focused and intentional. (laughs) 
<laughs> and own that. And you also see like so many of our friends or people we know are reading like white fragility. And it's like, have you talked to a black person about how they feel about that particular kind of racial work? Have you listened to any other black thinkers or writers and their feelings about white fragility? Like everything should be questioned and critiqued. Everything. Anyways. Yes. Exactly. It's not enough to just read the book and be like, good idea is mine now. Part of me. That's not actually doing anything. It's not. (laughs) I actually literally just had this conversation with someone. That's not enough. I'm glad that you read it. Yeah. What are you going to do with it now? And also, like, do you feel like this sinners in the hands of an angry God way of thinking about race is going to help anyone? (laughs) Like, what are you actually doing? That question, what are you actually doing, is one of the reasons why I can't write this book off, even as it made me uncomfortable in places. Because, like, Jennifer Ashley is literally doing. And, like, she's doing it in such a way where it's like, and I and I want to talk about Paris, because one of the things that's so important about Paris is the introduction of B characters mm-hmm. who work to give context for Ian's neurodiversity. Right. And so, like, we meet his artistic brother, who may be an artistic genius, but has definitely got some, like, weird fucked up shit with his estranged wife, who also functions potentially too maternally for Ian and is, like, very solicitous and cares a lot about him, but also, like, infantilizes him in ways Mm -hmm. that the book does a really good job of being, like, this is a well-intentioned person who doesn't understand the full extent of Ian's capacity. Yeah. Which then puts Beth in a place as our main character to like understand Ian's capacity better than people who do love him and want what's best for him. And so then we understand her as like deserving of this HEA. She understands him as a person first, as a man first, which I think does matter for writing a heteronormative romance, right? Totally. Acknowledging someone's like masculinity if that's important to them. And their like sexuality. I think that's one of the things that like the brothers and like Ian's family are kind of working on where it's like he can't have a sexually fulfilling relationship inside of a marriage because he's dangerous. He can only ever have liaisons with sex workers because he can't give what a marriage needs. Right. Ian's understanding of himself has been so informed by external people and it's always reinforced by his family. Whereas Beth comes in as the heroine and is like, I want to get to know you as you, not based on these roles and air quotes insights from other people. And even though she receives that information, she doesn't take it on board as like a rule to live by. Like when Ian says, I don't have the capacity to love you, she takes that as like his boundary, not as something that's like impossible for him, not as like a fact of his condition or whatever. She respects it as his own boundary and starts to try to manage her own feelings around that. But the fact that he has that stated boundary doesn't mean that she can't be happy with him. And of course, a big part of the book is like, of course he falls in love with her. Of course he's capable of love. There are shades of that in this book. And that's what makes me uncomfortable. Like in various parts of like their sex life, like, you know, he has a hard time meeting people's eyes and like that's a defining characteristic of people on the spectrum and also like cool that it's in the book like he has a hard time doing this 
and it's like how people maneuver, but also like from Ian's perspective, how he's like, I'm going to look at this part in your forehead or I'm going to look at this part on your shoulder and like how he has to understand himself in the world and like how he's constantly managing and mitigating his self for others, like to fit into society. Like it's just so much work all the time. And this book does a really good job of talking about that. Where it made me uncomfortable is she's like, if he would just look in my eyes when we're having sex, I would know. And I'm like, he can't look in your eyes. Stop wanting that. I'm going to push back. Sure. Because I think it's very fair for people who are in relationships with folks who have different kinds of boundaries based on whatever reason to wish that that boundary didn't exist. Sure. I think that's fair. There's this idea of like whenever you have a relationship, right? Or, you know, maybe like it's your child or your spouse and that person has different abilities that it's wrong for you to want something else right? Whereas people go through life in relationships with people who are status quo abled, right? And they also want different things from that relationship and wish that person didn't have this hang up. But we have this like martyrdom model for Mm -hmm. people. That's not fair. Like you get to complain about the particular traits of the person you're in any kind of relationship with, especially when it hurts you, you know, especially when you want something else. I think that's all true. I wish it had been working out as sophisticatedly and beautifully as you just said it because like the way that it is on the page at least as I was reading it is like she wants this thing it makes her so sad that she doesn't get it and when he finally looks in her eyes when he ejaculates into her womb (laughs) it's like oh everything's complete and I was like did it have to be though yeah it is sort of like building the martyrdom in itself and then once again putting the penis on a pedestal as like the tool for unlocking certain emotions and men. I want to talk more about this neurodiversity issue, but I think first we've got to talk about cold hard cash. Cold hard cash. This episode of Womance is brought to you by If the Boot Fits by Rebecca Weatherspoon from Kensington Books. Ah! <laughs> Isabel likes that author. Lights, camera, horses? That was funnier in my head. Set on a black-owned luxury dude ranch with a fairy tale twist, the second Cowboys of California romance by award-winning author Weatherspoon absolutely sizzled in this thoroughly modern take on the timeless tale of a struggling Cinderella who finds her prince charming at the 11th hour. An Oscar-winning actor and an aspiring screenwriter attempt to make a relationship work away from the Hollywood spotlight. If Cowboys of California rings a bell, well, no wonder. The first book in the series, A Cowboy to Remember, received fantastic reviews, raves from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Bookpage. And Rebecca Weatherspoon has the reputation for writing romances that are inclusive, full of consent, can confirm. While the Cowboys of California novels feature much less heat than her erotica and ad copy does assure us that the series includes numerous characters who are representative of the LGBTQIA community. This book has everything. Showbiz, cowboy, fairy tale retelling. It's got a really cool cover, a black hero, in a tuxedo and a cowboy hat. What a look. I want to see that more Mm. on the red carpet. Mm. LGBTQIA inclusive sweet romance, modern representation of black farmers and ranchers in America. We love to see it. If you love to see it too, pick up If the Boot Fits by Rebecca Weatherspoon from Kensington Books and go through her back catalog. Do yourself a favor. If you want something hot and heavy, we cannot recommend her enough. If you want something sweet, definitely pick up If the Boot Fits. Mm -hmm.
You wanted to talk more about neurodiversity. Yeah, so I think this idea of representation, especially as it pertains to autism spectrum, this is a space that gets returned to a lot in romance. If we look back on our back catalog, a lot of contemporaries from the 21st century touch on this issue and are very interested in being on the spectrum. When this book came out, I remember people wearing puzzle pieces on their lapels, right? Asperger's was a very popular idea to interrogate. I think we were for a while convinced that this is something we needed a cure for. And now we understand it as a spectrum that determines a certain amount of livability in the status quo world. When I say status quo, I want to be clear, a lot of the conditions that determine whether or not someone has a disability are set by not even the majority, but just like a pervasive tradition that's oftentimes problematic. And a lot of people wouldn't be understood to have a disability if we were able to consider different kinds of people in things like building design, website design, book design. (laughs) Anyways, that's just why I say status quo as opposed to like majority or anything like that. The fact that the madness of Lord Eden McKenzie never names the autism spectrum, never names autism, actually I think makes it work in our current moment because we Mm -hmm. understand it less as like an affliction and more Mm -hmm. as something neurodivergent or like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all somewhere on the same spectrum when it comes to this sort of lived experience of, you know, how you socialize and how you feel comfort if you like to focus on one thing or if you can have a great many interests and like what level of energy you bring to those interests, right, is really what we're talking about. And so the fact that the book doesn't name it, I didn't go into it thinking like, this is a book about someone with ASD. I understood that like Ian McKenzie has some kind of diagnosed neurodivergence, but I didn't understand it as anything specific. And I think that's what kind of makes this come back around in a way that works for me and wasn't upsetting to me. Because I was like, oh, he experiences the world differently than the status quo, and it doesn't need to be named, right? We understand that people are wrong for putting him in an institution, um, and we understand that people are right for mitigating to his requirements, right? I think that's right. I think one of the strengths, again, of historical romance is that it can really put contemporary problems into a context, and by stripping some of those names, it can really strip stigma, because it gives you so much more flexibility to talk about a thing. Because you get to talk about it in three dimensions rather than like the flattening that sometimes it really is. And I think that's one of the real pleasures of this book, because I think one of the strengths, as you point out, we have Ian's perspective on the page and it's methodical. And I think in some ways it's good and in some ways it's not as strong as it could be or as compassionate as it could be. I don't think Jennifer Ashley is on the spectrum. And so there are moments that like felt a little jarring, but mostly I think the strength of this depiction on the page is the valences that Ian is forced to navigate, right? So like he's thrown into an asylum against his will when he's very little because he doesn't conform to his father's notion of what a child should be, but also because he witnesses his father murder his mother. And Way to bury the lead, yeah! We find out that the real reason he was sent to an asylum is to keep him away from his brother so that he wouldn't reveal like, I saw dad murder mom, choke her to death. Because of his inability to lie. Yes. And prevaricate in any kind. 
mind. And like once that comes to light in the text, like some of the other stuff becomes clear. But also, like I said earlier, like the way that Isabella treats him is infantilizing, but kind, but like it's not treating him as an adult. And his brothers do this too. And like they all treat him with a kind of kid gloves, which is stifling. And when Beth comes in, she like breathes this fresh air into him and is like, no, he's an adult. He just like his brain is different. Like this is just how this happens. You know, in the same way that like every other adult in the book makes choices that other adults don't understand. Yeah, or like. Yeah, but they just like let them do it, right? Because they're a different person. People don't do that with Ian. Mm-hmm. Or at least not in his family. Beth does. Mm-hmm. Which is great, right? Because if the heroine does something, we know that it's good, right? And it enforces that idea, or for the most part. Right. Unless you get into some really good, some really juicy pieces of fiction, which we've talked about. But I think about the way this is depicted. I'm going to say, do you remember? But of course you remember Flowers from the Storm. Obviously. Oh my God. (laughs) And how the hero in that book, I actually think we've gotten a lot of differently abled people. So Mm -hmm. the hero in Flowers from the Storm is a stroke survivor and actually when we're in his perspective we struggle with language the same way he does and we get the other characters dialogues like the words on the page look like how they would sound to him because he survived a stroke stuff is a little bit harder to interpret and piece together correctly so good and I, I think about what you said about Ian and when we're in his perspective and how sometimes stuff feels like a little wrong I know where you're coming from, but I might excuse some of it for the fact that he's surrounded by this family who's constantly telling him what his life experience is like and how it's different and how he's different, right? As opposed to like, this is your personality, right? And it's totally legitimate that you are this way that you are. It's like, you're different and everything is harder for you. Like people who don't have this kind of like neurodivergence, right? Every time someone tells us about who we are, it's like reading a horoscope, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You are this way. And I think Ian's experience is much more prescriptive when people tell him who he is. And I think that gets reflected in his own worldview, inevitably. And so I think some of it can be chalked up to that and the fact that he's surrounded by this very, you're right, infantilizing group of people who love him, but not in the way that he needs to be loved, uh, the way Beth loves him. I think that partially explains some of it. I think part of it comes from, you know, not being a professional therapist who specializes in this kind of neurodivergence. But I think another part of it comes from like, you probably would internalize a lot of those ideas about yourself. I think that's fair. I also just think that there are moments, especially when we're in Ian's perspective, it's not lacking in compassion. I'm trying to articulate the problem that I had being in Ian's perspective, because I think to write a tone and to capture the voice of this person as we understand them on the spectrum takes a lot of care. And there are moments where it felt like I was watching someone slip into a kind of unspecified sort of stereotypical space. And it was those Mm, moments that made me feel uncomfortable where I was like, I'm not understanding Ian anymore. I'm understanding what feels like the DSM-5 discussion of... Right. I think that's right. I think you hit it. Yeah. I think it's like a lack of specificity. And when you start talking about like a generalized view of people who are on the spectrum, what that means. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's when the specificity slips. Right. And it's not all the time. And I think like there's so much about this book that I really do applaud and really enjoyed. But like those moments where Ian flattens out in his own perspective, I was like, don't love this. But also this book 
was written in 2009 and I was just thinking about it as we we're talking about this. I was like, there's a really weird Hugh Dancy film with Rose Byrne where he is on the spectrum. But in the movie, they called it Asperger's because the movie came out in like 2008 or 2009. And like that movie does the same thing. It flattens his character out and basically makes the diagnosis like a piece of his specific identity. And it's like, that's not the way. By the way, we're not using that term. But if you know someone who self-identifies as uh, having Asperger's, it's not like that's wrong. <laughs> no. And, you know, like a diagnosis is really flattening, but I think it's really flattening in like a character way. Right. And if you're struggling with something and you go to a therapist and you get a diagnosis, that can be so liberating to hear like, this is what I have going on. This is a thing and I can manage it. Like there are tools out there. It's not just spilled milk. Like sometimes it feels like this can be poured into a glass once you get a diagnosis. Exactly. That's such a beautiful metaphor. That's exactly right. And I think liberating, but also like having a scaffold to begin to understand why things have been so difficult. And like, you know, I've had friends who've talked about like when they finally get their like ADHD diagnosis and like how amazing that is to like have a word, but also then a management structure and then like ways in which you can begin to better understand yourself. And like, that's how it works in the real world. And like, I think that's really valuable. And I think you're so right to point out the difference between fiction and a character <laughs> development on the yeah. page versus a real world experience. You're right. That's like exactly true. Yeah. And sometimes getting a diagnosis can suck for you. Other times you can find like a real sense of community. Right. But for people like us who've never been diagnosed with any kind of spectrum disorder, it's better for us to talk about it as a spectrum as the current like understanding best describes it. And I think the most humanizing way of describing it because you and I are both on the spectrum. We're just at a different point point in our management that is completely based on once again that status quo of ability that's just been very convenient for the two of us to live under. All right. We talked a lot about weird parts. Should we talk about sexy parts? Yes. What a sexy book! It's a very sexy book. Uh, what was your sexiest part, Isabel? I loved the cunnilingus scene at the ball. But again, like, we know this about me. It's like, I am a sucker for public sex. I also really love it in historicals because, like, they have to hold up so many layers of their dress. So, like, it's a kind of imprisonment of its own so then like you're literally just being pleasured like you can't do anything but hold your petticoats yeah I'm into that I thought it was so sexy I also love like how into carnal pleasure Ian is he's like no I like super I'm gonna get all up in there it's like all I've been thinking about all day I'm thinking about the first time they have penetrative sex and I think it might be my favorite because I think that is a point at which it really clearly depicts, or maybe whenever the first time they have sex after she comes out of her coma, which happens in this book, so dramatic. It's a romance, y'all. Because I think if I could speak to an overall theme I really appreciated is that, you know, sex with intensity can still be romantic. You know, things like hair pulling and things like that are still within the realm of being like deeply affectionate and expressive and romantic. You know, I thought that was great. But probably my sexiest part was being in the opera box. <laughs> Once again. Anytime I see your wrist, I think of you. <laughs> there is absolutely a wrist part. 
hurt. He starts circling her wrist, the little patch of skin between her sleeve and her glove as he's talking to her in this confined space that's still public and like smoky and whiskey and dark and velvet. Yeah, I loved it. Like even the non-sex scenes are, are very sexy. Actually, I saw a piece of criticism on Goodreads that was like, I didn't see the love in the sexuality. I saw the desire uh, and I can't relate. You know, I, I think you're right. Ian takes such a pleasure in like the mechanics of carnality and like the different ways to do it. And this will get into my weirdest part, but he's like explaining choking once. But like whenever he's making love to her, he's calling on all of those mechanics. You get the same sense of like sensuality related to passion of mechanics that you get whenever he like touches his tongue to a bowl to determine how old the glaze is and whenever he runs his hands over the bowl, right? It's still like a very like fluttering thing, even though he expresses it through like a series of rules and practices. I agree. And there's even, I think that's so interesting that you read that on Goodreads because I feel like the book probably anticipated that criticism because there's even a moment where Ian's asking her like what love is and I was like "Mm, I didn't love that conversation but one of the things that that conversation did where he's like well is it desire because I desire your body does that mean I love you and she's like well desire is usually a part of it but like not the only part because desire can fade it could also like do other things and like you can desire things that are bad for you and then like he like internalizes that information and I agree I think like his clear pleasure and clear just like immersion into carnality. It was pleasurable. It was pleasurable to read. It was pleasurable to be in those spaces. And like his intensity was a pleasure. So like I 100% agree with you. I think like desire and love and intensity. It was just so many shades. Weirdest part, anything you haven't expressed already that you want to put on the record? Oh, the bastard, the police inspector. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's definitely My father. <laughs> Turns out the cop who's been hunting the Mackenzies and trying to pin this murder on them forever. Literally. Turns out I'm your half-brother, bitches. And that's why I'm so mad. I'm two years older. I should be the Duke. I want to be the Duke. And they're like, we're going to take care of your mom. And he's like, I'll take care of my mom. I know. It's so lame. It was so lame. It was such a like unnecessary thing. Like it was enough to like solve the murder in a way that doesn't absolve the Mackenzies. And I kind of liked the idea of having him continue to follow them throughout the books and like (laughs) different stuff happening would have been cool. That's such a good weirdest part. The fifth book is about him. Yeah, you are exactly right. So I was going to talk about the choking. Like they talk (laughs) Choking is something that's become quite trendy, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. Because, like, they talk about choking in this book sexually. Mm-hmm. Ian describes it as like a thing that happens. It's dangerous. You've got to be skilled at it. I'm skilled at it. You know, mm-hmm. my brother is skilled at it. But then like that woman who got choked ended up murdered. Like the person who choked her kind of sucks. And then his dad choked his mom to death. The shades of choking. I was like, I don't know if this is actually a good argument. It's a pretty bad one. Two people end up dead. I know. Two people end up dead from it. Another weirdest part for me is heart. He sucks so hard. Like, I'm sure one of the seven books redeems him. Book four. But I was just like, God, this guy fucking sucks. He's literally the worst. Oh, and of course, the actual murderer was a woman. 
It would have been cooler if it was heart. It was an interesting story as to why, and it was a winding mystery, and so that's satisfying. But spoiler alert, the murderer is a woman, and I'm just kind of bored of it. I'm bored of the villain in romance novel almost always being a woman. Women hurting women. We do do it. (laughs) We do do it. We do do it in a lot of ways. But I don't want that in my fantasy. I agree. Is this a romance for you, Morgan? This is a romance for me. I would recommend this to so many people as a first romance, even. If you're not knowing where to start, I think this is a level of intensity, like, higher than uh, Tessa Dare, but not Mm -hmm. quite a Judith McNaught level, right? Not quite a (laughs) Joanna Lindsay. So this would definitely be my recommendation for a first romance. I think it's a good, like, middle, like, angsty, weird hot, loved all the characters, you know. Mm -hmm. It tickled all my funny bones, but not to the point where I would be scared to recommend it to anyone off the street. What about you, Isabeau? I mean, it's a romance. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I bought the entire series. Like, I wouldn't (laughs) do that if it wasn't a romance. Like, I think, you know, it has problems. And we talked about the problems that I had with it. But, like, overall, I think for 2009 and, like, even for 2020, this book is doing such good work. And it's doing it with such compassion. Like, in some ways, like, it feels weird to compare this to, like, the Debbie Maycomer. But, like, it's so kind. It's so humane. So humane. But... But like, it's not like kindness is inactive. Like, this is a book where kindness is verb. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really good. Yeah, totally. I would say we've got good characters, we've got good plot, and good writing. Good, clean, except for the fact that the detective was their brother. Not a lot of fat on this animal. So I loved it. It's a romance for me. Any parting thoughts? I have none. Me neither. I think we covered it all. This book has a little bit over four stars on Goodreads with over 29,000 reviews. So, I mean, you know, sometimes books are popular for a reason. One of the negative reviews I saw on Goodreads, I said I had no parting thoughts, but here we are. One of the reviews on Goodreads was like, I had very high expectations for this novel, so you can imagine how disappointed I was, right? And I thought about that, and I was like, you know what? I don't know if you had high expectations or if you were just like, and this is one of those things where like, whenever we critique someone else, we're really critiquing ourselves. I had to like take a step back after doing this. I was like, I don't know if you're disappointed by this book because you had high expectations or you just felt like the expectation that had been set was impossible. And so now you don't want to believe it's as good as it is. And I am now worried that I have done that (laughs) on the show. And so maybe if you guys are listening to this episode, send us an email, womancemail at gmail.com or DM us on Twitter or Instagram and let us know which books you think we did that on. I know a lot of you see the iTunes reviews. I know some of you think that we're a little mean, but I'm like that experience has made me want to like look back and, and maybe revisit some books that I, I'm worried that I went into it with the totally wrong perspective sometimes, which is something I strive not to do. I feel like I might have let myself down, Isabeau. You know what, Morgan? I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to show our work, right? Like at the very beginning of the pandemic, you suggested this amazing episode where we went through our back catalog and we decided if our romance no man's could stand. And you and I came to the conclusion that we were too embarrassed and wrong about our original discussion of Joey Hill's amazing work, Perfect <laughs> Kiss. Yeah. And I think, honestly, if we talk this much about, you know, obviously social justice, but everything that we care about, like showing our work and being like, yeah, we can revisit and we 
we can understand ourselves to be wrong. Like, we're not perfect people. We are just people. And sometimes we are not the best people to reevaluate our own stances. So other people can see us a little bit clearer. And so if there is an episode and you're like, wow, they really missed the point on that one. I really think they did. Reach out to us. We've got a deep catalog. It might be worth revisiting some stuff, even briefly. Even briefly. I think it's a good idea for us to do a year in review where we look (laughs) back over some of our works and we're like, do we still feel that way about that call? Yeah. And this is a good time. So we'll probably put out a call on social media for your feedback. (laughs) Yeah, you could be featured on the show. All right. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.